what I think the most important thing is for people to, if you're not encouraging people to run for office, which I'm always doing, I'm encouraging everyone but myself, go do it. I don't tell them about all the stress and the chaos. Say it's the most wonderful experience in the world. You should go do it. And it is the most wonderful experience in the world. But I'm encouraging people to get involved and to educate themselves on the issues. And saying that you don't feel like you know enough to vote is a cop-out. And I hear that so much from people in my generation. I don't really know anything about the candidate. Well, they have a website. You can go on and I can explain to you what these things mean since this is my wheelhouse. I'm happy to help educate you. But what I'm not happy to do is reinforce your view that not being educated enough to vote is an excuse. Welcome to Political Contessa. I'm Jennifer Nassor, and this show is here to support your interest in center-right politics, policy, and breaking news. Listen in and discover how to awaken your inner ideal candidate and, if you're ready, how you can jump in and change the world as a runner or a supporter. Welcome to Political Contessa. If you or a friend have ever considered running or you know a woman who should, I've got something just for you. My quick guide called Secrets from the Campaign Trail. It will show you five signs to tell you you're ready to enter the political arena. To get these tips and learn about all new podcast episodes and ways to get involved, head over to politicalcontessa.com. Hello, and welcome to Political Contessa. This is Jennifer Nassor, your Political Contessa. And as usual, I am so happy to be here with you to talk about some things that I think are really important. As you know, sometimes it's the news of the day. Sometimes it's a hot button issue that's really under my skin. And other times it's for phenomenal women that are active in politics in some way that you didn't know that you could actually get involved. And so today I am speaking with Jacqueline Corvo, who is a friend of mine here in Massachusetts. She is a young woman involved in the Young Republicans in Massachusetts. She's an activist. She sat on the governor of Massachusetts, Charlie Baker's Commission for Refugees and Immigrants. She was on the status of Asian Americans. She has a political science degree from one of our universities here in Massachusetts, from Simmons College. And she sits on a body that I was the chairman of, the Massachusetts Republican Party. However, she did not have the good fortune of being on the committee when I was chair, because that was like the good old fun days. We used to have tequila parties and wine tasting and beer tasting. And oh, it was so much fun back then. Needed to make the, the Republican Party fun in those days. Anyway, so I'm so happy to have Jacqueline here with me today because she's an activist and she's young and she's fiery and she sees the world in a different place, in a different way. And I'm so excited to have her here with me on this episode. So Jacqueline, thank you so much. Thanks so much for having me on, Jen. I'm excited. This is great. So you're so fascinating to me because you ran for state rep. You were very young when you did that. You have been active. You've been supporting candidates. You've been working on campaigns. You have been in the press. You have no problem having your voice heard. So I have a degree in political science too. And I always find it interesting. You know, sometimes I think people mail it in with those degrees and other times people actually use them. 
for what they were trained for. So you came out of college and you thought, what were you going to (laughs) do? So when I graduated from college, my dream was to be an elected public office. That's always what I wanted to be. Um, When I was younger, I wanted to be a U.S. Senator. It was always my dream. And I think as I got exposed to more of the political world, I realized that there's so much more out there than serving in public office. Even though I did, like you said, run for state rep and try to fulfill that dream, I was exposed to so much more and so many more opportunities to get involved. That's awesome. Because I think that that, that's kind of how I was too. I always thought that I would run for governor. That was my dream. But once I ran for Boston City Council in the work before I ran and then after, there are so many more things that you could do where you could really effectuate change on a different level than bashing your head against the wall because you have to deal with the legislature or you know other elected officials. So now you ran for office and you have found and created kind of a different path for yourself and, and a name and a reputation in Massachusetts and Republican circles, at least. What do you see as a legacy that you would like to leave and, and what you're doing? My legacy, I mean, that, that's such, wow, I've never thought about that before. Doing the right thing, to be honest, and calling out injustices. I've never been shy about bringing to people's attention um, when something's not right. You know, when, when someone's doing something that reflects poorly on our party, I speak up and I, I try to talk to the person and I try to um, explain a better way to do it from my perspective. It's a difficult time right now for Republicans from across the country, especially in Massachusetts. And, you know, we're at 9% and we don't have the luxury of infighting. We don't have the luxury of, of not banding together. And so anytime I see something that kind of flies in the face of us accomplishing our common goals, I'm not afraid to speak up. And, and I think that's the legacy that I want to leave is that I always you know, try to bring people together and try to um, bring out the best in people. I love that. And that's a good legacy. And by the way, you know, I'm a lot older. And so I look at if I'm not here one day, what do I want written on my tombstone? But I think that I always had that perspective, right? Like, what is it that you want to leave? I think that that's a really fabulous because if you could change one person, if you could make one person see the world differently, see politics differently, it definitely is impactful. So I would consider you an activist. So you ran for office. And then how did you kind of find your new niche? That's a good question. So after I ran for office, I learned a lot about myself and my natural skill set and the skill set that I really needed to work on. And so I found that my strength doesn't necessarily lie in, in policy. It lies more on the campaign side of things and strategizing behind the scenes. So even though I would never rule out a run for public office again, I think that there's a lot more work for me to do in being effective in a role like that versus being on a campaign. So it was a lot of self-learning. I was 23 years old, 24 years old. It was over a special. So it happened over my birthday at the end of the year. And being that young and being thrown in and throwing myself into something like that by choice, you don't really have an option but to acclimate really quickly and to learn what you're not good at and what you are good at very fast. (laughs) That's a really good life lesson, I think, Mm -hmm. running at that age. So, God, I have so many questions for you because you cross over on so many different things that I'm interested in, so many different 
cross sections of society, right? On young people. I mean, we know that millennials generally tend to be liberal, progressive. You know, I can't even see Democrats because the Democrats of the past, the Democratic Party of the past doesn't exist for many of them. So in your age group, how do you relate to your friends and your colleagues with your own personal political views? And how do we engage them more in right-sided politics? And I say right-sided because you know, we're kind of in the same group of on the right, we're concerned about, and especially here on the East Coast, concerned about pocketbook issues, concerned about kitchen table issues, the economy. How do you get to talk to those folks and and say, you know what, look, you know, you're not going to have a job by the end of the year. Isn't that important to you? Right. So I think a lot of people my age don't look at everything and don't question enough. So that's something I've really challenged myself to do. And for me, good leadership is kitchen table issues. It is pocketbook issues because at the end of the day, you can't self-determine if you can't support yourself. So if you want to be the person that you were born to be and you want to identify how you want to identify, you can't do that if you're not able to go out and get a job and buy a house or make your rent every month. So those things don't become opportunities unless you're able to self-suffice. So one of the things that's really important when I talk to people my age, it's like, that's great that you want to advocate for these people in this cause. But at the end of the day, if you can't pay your bills and these people can't pay their bills, there's nothing to advocate for anymore. So I think that good policy empowers people. Um, and that's why I'm a Republican, because if you are able to self-determine and go out, get your own job, learn how to um, be effective in what you want to do with your life. At the end of the day, that's what the Republican Party is. It's individual empowerment and it's individual freedom to be successful in your own right. And I think that's something that the Democrats really, really miss. I think they're starting to cater to a group of people that are very, very small. And just because a group of people are small doesn't mean they don't deserve advocacy, but it does mean that you can't ignore everything else. So you can empower everyone. Yeah, totally. I mean, you know, it, it ranges in so many different issues that we see today where it's almost like the tiny, tiny, tiny minority, you know, gets all of the attention and yet everyone should get the attention. It shouldn't just be one little section of the population. And so, so I mean, we see where inflation is out of control at this point. The Fed is continuously raising interest rates, which I don't know if I was your age and potentially a first time home buyer, potentially someone who is starting a family. And I would be looking at those interest rates with a lot of concern that home buyers are now paying a 6% interest rate this year, as opposed to last year where it was between two and three. And so do you think that in the midterms specifically, and when I say midterms, I mean in legislative races as well as congressional races, that one, millennials will come out and vote, and two, that they will vote with their wallets instead of voting with just their hearts? I hope they vote with their wallets because I think it kind of goes back to what I was saying before is these are basic needs. Finding a job and having a home are two basic needs. And whether or not you're looking to buy or just keep a roof over your head by making rent at the end of the month, there's no question that if you can't meet those two needs, nothing else matters. If you can't afford to literally keep a roof over your head, which is what a lot of people are looking at, and it's not a, you know, a far-fetched fear at this point that people can't make their rent anymore or that the, the dream of owning a home is out of reach. It is. 
um, yeah. especially in Massachusetts, the average home price is $750,000. So it is out of reach for a lot of people. And a lot of people my age can't move out of their parents' house. So it's, it's very scary. And I think that a lot of people my age are starting to realize that they may have made some bad votes in the past to get us to where we are today. And that, you know, all these issues that a very small group of people are very, very vocal about, again, they're not unimportant, but when you start to get pulled into kind of this performance activist role where you feel really good about what you're activating for, but it's not necessarily the only thing that should be on your mind. So I hope that people kind of reflect back and say, gee, I wish I had, um, when I was 25, started to think more about what my life would look like if I had paid more attention to issues that would directly affect me and so many more other people. I couldn't agree more, of course. But I mean, you know, it goes to the attorney general in Michigan, right, says, oh, we need to have transvestites in every school, right? Like, that's a good thing, which I don't know, as a parent, I can't even imagine. But why are we talking about that? When our cities, if you're the attorney general, you should be concerned instead about crime and violence. You should be concerned about other things. If you are the governor, you should be concerned about how people are getting hurt. We see from legislatures from coast to coast that they are not using the reserves to pay for the gas tax. Instead, I know in Massachusetts, most recently, our legislature was talking about using our surplus that are, came from our governor and making great fiscal decisions. We'd like to use our surplus for the climate. Now, I'm not opposed to climate advocacy, but I don't know when I go to the pump and I'm paying over five fifty for gas. I paid almost six dollars today for gas and I have to drive because I have to get kids to school. I have to get kids to camp. I have to get to work. How do you even I don't care if we have a lot of jobs. You can't get to your job because it's becoming prohibitive to drive your car. So our legislatures that are coming from Democratic legislatures would rather focus on issues that are social issues that pull at people's hearts instead of the fiscal issues. And it's like you want to take someone and shake them and say, do you see what's going on? They might make you feel good when you put your head down at night, but you're not going to have a place to put your head down at night. Right. And so how I want to know how we activate and get those people to say, you know what, maybe I'm not ready to help a Republican. Maybe I'm not ready to go out and campaign and talk about, but maybe I should think about it and have buyer's remorse over the AOCs and the Bernie Sanders and the Elizabeth Warrens and the Joe Bidens of the world that they're not doing what they need to do for the people that they actually work for. And Jenny, you know what the worst part about those people are is that they get us to the point where we are now, where we say, gee, we're stuck. And now the answers that they're proposing seem like the only solution, which is basically democratic socialism. They put us to a place where we almost don't have a choice because we don't want to be homeless. We don't want to not be able to pay for gas. But if we had avoided this scenario to begin with and addressed the issues that should have been addressed and elected the people that could address those issues and prevent these problems, we would be in a place where we could afford our own housing. We wouldn't need subsidized housing. We wouldn't need to be on SNAP and benefits to feed our families. So it's it's almost like a self-fulfilling prophecy for them. And I don't know if it's a, if it's a conspiracy, but if it is, they're doing a good job right. um, to just drive us into government dependence. Yeah. And that's well, something the Democrats have always been really good at doing. 
Sure. I mean, they're making us look like Russia, right? When you right. have to wait online for COVID vaccines, you have to wait online for COVID testing. It started there. Then you have to, you had to wait on lines when we had all of our shutdowns outside of food stores. Then you close down schools. You force parents out of the workforce. You now have a baby formula shortage. So you have parents waiting on lines again, trying to find that. You have gas. I've seen lines at gas stations now. And so all of a sudden, I agree. I mean, I don't want to, I'm not a conspiracy theorist, but you know, if you look at it and say, this is really what they want, are the, the Democrats that are in power trying to get us used to this kind of communist lifestyle of waiting online and not getting what you need unless you're an oligarch. And then at that point you can get whatever you want. But it, it is scary. And, and I'm not trying to scare any, again, I'm not trying to scare anyone. I'm not trying to be a conspiracy theorist, but I would love for the folks who are progressive liberals, the democratic socialists to see things in a different light of there's no reason why we can't have a capitalist society, why we can't make sure the economy is on a good track, keep inflation low, encourage people to purchase homes, to go to work, and at the same time, also encourage your same generation to be kind and compassionate, right? I think both you and I are both what I would consider compassionate conservatives, right? Understanding, Absolutely. want to listen, won't charge at you for your views. But how many times have we been charged at for our views from someone on the left or on the real right? <laughs> I feel like yeah. <laughs> we're fodder for everyone. <laughs> True. And punching bags. So, and then how, so from, from what you see and the work that you do, is it kind of an even number of men and women that are out there helping on campaigns? Do you see more young people, more old, more middle age? What do we need to support candidates? Because I think, you know, it's really important to run for office, but it is even more important to be the backbone, to be the people who are there either delivering pizza or coffee or doing the door knocking or helping fundraise. What do you see the need out there? So I do surround myself with a lot of young people who work on campaigns. I'm a young Republican. I'm a member of their executive board. So my viewpoint is perhaps a little bit skewed, but if I were to step back from that role, it's definitely more men, definitely fewer young people. And I have to tell you that the target demographic is not, you know, 18 to 35 when we're looking at voter targeting. It's simply not. The people that come out in droves are retired people. People over 55 are the voters, which is really sad because at this point, if you're over 55, you're not going to be the one looking to start a family in 10 years. So you're looking at interests like making sure that your social security check is going to come, making sure that you have access to the Medicare benefits that you paid into. And that's perfectly fine. I wouldn't expect anyone to not vote their own interests, but it's a problem when 80% of the voting block is voting for one set of interests. So what I think the most important thing is for people to, if you're not in encouraging people to run for office, which I'm always doing. I'm encouraging everyone but myself to go do it. I don't tell them about all the stress and the chaos. Say it's the most wonderful experience in the world. You should go do it. And it is the most wonderful experience in the world. But I'm encouraging people to, to get involved and to educate themselves on the issues. And saying that 
you don't feel like you know enough to vote is a cop out. And I hear that so much from people in my generation. Well, I don't really know anything about the candidate. Well, they have a website. You can go on and I can explain to you what these things mean since this is my wheelhouse. I'm happy to help educate you. But what I'm not happy to do is reinforce your view that not being educated enough to vote is an excuse. Mm-hmm. And that makes me more angry than anything when I see someone who's, you know, a young American, especially a young Republican telling me that, you know, I didn't really feel like um, I could make an educated choice. Well, do you really think the other people are voting feel that way? No, they probably know less than you do. Right. So (laughs) when I was running for city council, many, many, many of my voters had never voted in a municipal election before. And I had friends that are brilliant, that have had amazing careers that are politically, um, you know, they keep up with the news, but I would almost say politically agnostic for not voting before, you know, maybe would only vote for constitutional officers and vote in a statewide election year or presidential, not in a local election. And I felt like I was teaching Civics 101 with the importance of voting for your most local electeds, because those are the people you see at the coffee shop. You see them at your local restaurant. You see them at your grocery store and you can touch them and you can tell them. I don't mean touch them, by the way. I just mean like it's (laughs) do not go and touch anyone. That is not right. (laughs) Appropriately or inappropriately. Don't touch anyone. I'm just saying that those are the people that are there every day, day in and day out. And they should be the most connected in the community. Whereas your member of Congress, you know, they should be around, but most of them just hang out in Washington, D.C. in their little bubble. And so I think it's really important to make sure that people understand that your local officials, whether it's your municipal or your legislative, are making decisions for you in your state that really impact you. And I agree. It's a cop out to say, oh, I didn't know. And by the way, today, most of our states have early voting, have mail-in ballots, which, you know, is a very new concept. So how do you make that excuse that you can't vote? And you're right, because I'll tell you, as someone who's on, you know, straddling between a kid going to college and one starting middle school, the issues that affect people in my frame, right, are the taxes, the real estate taxes, you know, are your kids using the public schools? 10 years from now, I don't have anyone in school. So that doesn't become as concerning for me. But when I was in my early 30s, it was, where would we live? Where are the schools? What's the quality of the schools? Is there transportation? Can we take the bus over? Can we take the T, which is our subway system in Boston? Is it safe? And all those issues. Now, today, it is public safety, right? It's the addiction issue. It's the mental health issue. Is, you know, are my schools safe enough that someone's not going to come in with a gun and, you know, shoot up my just finished fourth graders classroom? You know, there are so many different issues. And I think it's important for all of us to have a voice. I mean, I, I look at my friends now who suddenly started getting interested in politics, because not that they weren't, but they didn't talk about it. Yeah, they talk about it with me, but they wouldn't talk about it with anyone else. But now because of what we all heard being taught in our kids' classrooms, because of being more interested in what your kids were being taught after everyone was locked down, it now has become an issue. 
So I see more women wanting to talk like we do all the time about politics, but I want more, right? I want more women to be activated, to want to work on campaigns, to want to help more young women, especially because you're our future. I mean, you know, we don't on either side, but we need people who are willing to to discuss and unite and have conciliatory conversations and negotiate. Do you think that that's going to be possible? So it's, it's absolutely brutal. People, I think, in the advent and this age of social media have really lost the human aspect when they type into that screen or on that keyboard. There are things that they would type that they would never say sitting across the table from someone or to someone's face. And so it just is such a cause for concern because one, it makes you a person that you don't want to be. Like if you go back and look at those comments, would you want your kids to see those? Mm -hmm. Um, Is that something you would tell your kids is okay to say to someone? It's probably not if you're one of those people who is causing this issue of incivility. And the other end of it is if you're online attacking people who are trying to make a difference, like our public officials, um, and some of them work very, very hard, and a lot of them aren't responsible for the policies that these people have an issue with, you're driving out good people. There's always a way to speak to someone and hope that they address your concerns without name calling and without insulting them. My best friend is a city councilor. And, you know, when we go out and, you know, have a drink or go out for coffee, people come up to her and they're very nice to her because it's face to face. And so I think if we can bring that back, it would be so much better because people like her are the people that end up running for higher office. And so it's really important to be able to have those conversations with them because, When you get to be like a rep or a senator, you're not having those conversations anymore. You're not going to your local coffee shop every day and seeing your constituents. So if you reinforce that when they're, it's like a kid, if you reinforce good behavior when they're young, when they grow up, they're going to be a whole lot better at being an adult. So when local officials grow up to be U.S. senators, what kind of experience do you want them to have had with constituents? You want them to have had a constructive one. Yep. And they'll never run for anything ever again. If things continue like this, I mean, I was speaking to someone who's on the Maskinomic School Committee the other day, and some of the emails she showed me and some of the commentary on social media was just completely unacceptable directed at her. And I hear this from so many people. I don't want to continue to serve if I have to be subjected to this. Yeah, I mean, that's a kind of an age old thing where where for women, especially they haven't wanted to run because how it would impact them in their social lives, right? And their social lives include their kids. It includes, I mean, for years, I said to my kids, please do not Google me, right? Because if you Google me, there were pictures that when I was chair, this demon, this evil man would post of me and take my face. And this is a true story. Impose my face, superimpose my face on a dominatrix body made a poster of me looking like Hitler. And I would say he has nothing to do. He lives in his mother's basement probably. And this is what he does. We have transformed that. That was just Facebook stuff and things he would post online. Now we have Twitter and it's, you could be as mean as you want as a keyboard warrior. You don't need to have your correct name. You could go under anything you want. You could have 15 accounts if you want. And you do need thick skin to run for office or 
You just need to have a really good support network around you. And I know when I was running, I would call my my best friend, who's my sister, like my sister um, in California. And I would, we've been friends since we were eight and say to her, okay, you love me, right? Like I'm a really good person. And she would say, yeah, why? And I'm like, uh, cause if you read the comments, the direct messages to me on Twitter, they are terrible. Right. And it took everything inside me and I'm strong and I have thick skin. It took everything not for me to comment and not to second think, you know, not to have those second thoughts of maybe I do suck. Maybe I am this, maybe I am that. And we need to get away from it because I think one of the big issues in politics today overall is such a lack of respect. No one respects anyone. No one respects the diversity of thought and opinion. No one respects that we're each uniquely individual. Um, You know, and Reagan I say this all the time on this podcast, you know, had this 80-20 principle, you know, you're not my enemy if we don't agree 20% of the time. I take it a step further. I mean, do you agree with your best friend 70% of the time? Do you agree with your parents 50% of the time? Do you agree with, you know, a spouse, a significant other? And I think that it's a really hard measurement to say that a complete stranger that we don't know should agree with us 100% of the time. Absolutely. Absolutely. Without a doubt. It's an unreasonable expectation. It's an unreasonable (laughs) expectation. Totally. Right. It's something that I think it takes us to try to change it. So how do we change it? What do we, what are the conversations that you think that our friend listening who, you know, lives in another blue state and, doesn't really want to talk politics, really truly believes that it's outrageous that gas prices are where they are, that the United States continuously gives away billions of dollars overseas, um, that we you know, allow people into the country to utilize our health services and our public safety and our schools and nothing is going on and, and wants to you know, talk about that because it's impacting her life. What suggestions do you have for someone to, to get active and to, to make some change? So one of the things I participated in recently, and and I'm probably going to regret admitting that I participated in this um, because (laughs) of what we just talked about, but I sat down with some Democrats and some independents and they were not activists or party officials like I am, but they were people who care about their communities. And there were other Republicans there. And a very good friend of mine put it on and we basically sat around for about two hours and constructively answered questions about ourselves and how we came to think the way that we do. And at the end of the night, we pretty much came to the realization that nine times out of 10, we have the same priorities. We want low gas prices. We want safe schools. We want every child to feel loved and accepted regardless of how they feel inside. We want immigrants to have a path to naturalization. We want safe borders. The only disagreement is how to get there. And so one thing that I think is really important is people ignore evidence-based policy. So you have data that tells you what works and what doesn't. And this is something Governor Baker has been really good at. He's a data guy. And I learned this by watching him. It's not rocket science. If you have really smart people around you and you are a really smart person like Governor Baker is, you can effectuate change and implement good policy. And you can do it in a way that unites people and brings them together. There's no secret that he's the most popular governor for a reason because he was able to tap into that common drive to just make a better state. Like we collectively decided 
you know, 75% of us in Massachusetts that we like him and we like him because he keeps our school safe. He, um, for a long time, I don't even know how he did it. I just saying it, I don't think I've ever said it out loud. How many disasters did he get us through? I mean, between the gas explosions and the, all that snow we got and the biggest one, the pandemic, I mean, he literally led us through so many catastrophes with a steady hand. And he did it in a way that everyone was like, wow, we got out the other side of this because of his leadership and because he surrounded himself with really smart people, him and Karen Polito. And so it's not rocket science from where I'm sitting because I've seen it done and I've seen it done by really good people like Charlie Baker and Karen Polito. And so when I'm sitting down with these people who think differently than me, it wasn't a shock, but it, it was kind of an aha moment at the end to realize that this person who's so much further left on the political spectrum than me, we want the same thing. We want a healthy environment and a healthy earth. We want safe schools. We want a safe border. We vote for different people. So right. I think conversations like that are really important. Just talking to your neighbors and, you know, there's a lot of distractions out there like Trump and Marjorie Taylor Greene and, you know, all these people who just dominate the news cycle and whether you like them or not, they're very divisive. Oh, yeah. I mean, you know, you've got Marjorie Taylor Greene on one side and you have AOC on the other. And, you know, it is very divisive. And you hit on something when I chaired the Mass GOP, the chairman of the Democratic Party at the time would call me every once in a while and say, you take more hits from your party than you do from our people. And him and I would have conversations and I would say, the reason why I like you and why we get along is because you don't have an evil bone in your body. You want your governor and I want my governor, right? And I come at it from the right. You're coming at it from the left. But at the same, we want the same things. We want goodness. We want good policy. We want good leaders. It's not like someone's trying to do evil in the world, right? And one of the things that I always say about our former president is that his tone and tenor, right? The way that he would talk about things, it isn't building a wall at the border. It is how about we don't want people coming over in boxes without food, water, a bathroom and air, especially as it gets warmer. And when all those people come over, where do they go? How do you educate your kids? Why are you letting traffickers take your children, take girls and sell them to prostitution and boys and sell, sell them off to gangs? And I don't think anyone wants that, right? I don't care what your political party is. No one wants to see that kids are sold. No one wants to know that kids are being harmed. No one wants to know that humans are being brought over in containers on top of each other. No one wants that, right? And so no one wants to see polar bears die and, and massive flooding or on the alternative to have droughts. No one wants that. And so at some point, someone has to have the balls to cut through the BS and to stop the arguing and to say, you know, hey, look, Democrats, you've been in office for 18 months. You've done absolutely nothing on gun control. Stop saying it's those evil Republicans. You actually have all three, <laughs> all three houses, right? You can't keep talking about it. You have to do something. Wild. So instead of just blaming the Republicans, go have quiet support with the Republican Party and do it before any more kids get hurt. And those are things that I think all of us can agree with instead of, you know, you see 20 something members of Congress voted against protection at the Supreme Court justices homes. 
what are you doing? What, how could you possibly, because if those were liberal justices and 24 Republicans voted against that, they would be outraged, right? And so we need to stop the politics and politics. Enough is enough. We need to have good conversations. I hope we have more people like you, Jack, Jacqueline, that come out and and want to be advocates, not just run for office so you could run and say, I'm the youngest one who did this. And, you know, look at me and it's all about my ego. It's not. It's about, like I said from the beginning, what's your legacy? And I think that that's a question that anyone who wants to open their mouth, anyone who wants to comment on Twitter, social media, or call people names, think about what you want your legacy to be. Absolutely. Absolutely. Thank you so much. Well, thank you. My God, please. I'm such a fan of yours. I think you do great work. I appreciate all the work that the young Republicans do, especially in blue states, blue states like Massachusetts. But there are many, many other young Republican groups out there that work very hard. And young Republicans, by the way, do not end at 18 or 21 or 28. They go all the way to 40. And that is important. I was young Republican general counsel in my mid thirties and brought in a lot of friends. And that's how we ended up having when I was chair tequila parties and beer tasting parties and wine tasting parties, because <laughs> I dragged all of them up with me. But I hope that your conversation here today on Political Contessa is motivating for my listener who might be a little bit hesitant to start discussions with Democrats and independents, but does understand it's really important for everyone to see where we stand, that, you know, we don't have horns and a tail. We're not breathing fire. We're actually good people with big hearts that Mm -hmm. want to change the world. Absolutely. Absolutely. Well, thank you very much, Jacqueline Corvo from Massachusetts, member of the Republican State Committee and activist and a young female who is working very hard to change just a little bit of the conversation, which is something that I hope that you go out there and do. So Jacqueline, thank you very much for being part of Political Contessa. Thank you so much, Jen. I had a great time. All right. And for you out there, thank you for listening and stay happy, healthy, and safe. Thanks so much for listening to Political Contessa. For all the ways to listen and to get the inside scoop on what's happening in center-right politics for women like us, head over to politicalcontessa.com. 